Well, it turned out he would only have it die when he made a right turn onto the old Clark Bridge. That was the only time the car would die. It was the specific angle at which he was turning the wheel, which caused a wire underneath to rub up against something. And over time, that wire had actually worn a bare spot. So that way it would short out when he made that turn. Ah, and damn. And it would cause the car to die. I thought you were going to say ghosts on that bridge, like the ghosts were attacking his car or something. That would be a little more interesting. I, I think, mean, can but... we can we really rule that out? I mean, maybe that is what happened, you know? Uh, maybe the ghosts were moving the wire. <laughs> yeah, you good never know. point. Totally. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. If you'd like to support episodes like this being made, please check out the Patreon page for Half Hour Intern at patreon.com slash Intern. There you can contribute on a per-episode basis to help awesome episodes like this keep on coming out. So on to today's episode. In it, I interview Steve Honaker, who is a auto mechanic. So in addition to... Steve telling us about what he does. I had a lot of questions for Steve to kind of help us out on the consumer end. So um, he'll talk to us all about like modern diagnostics and all the interesting things that mechanics do with cars. But he'll also let us know like how we can find a good mechanic and give us tips on things that we should probably be doing with our cars to keep them in good shape and stuff like that. So without further ado, here is Auto Mechanic. Steve, thanks so much for joining me on the show, man. Hey, Blake. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So I would love to start out this interview by kind of breaking the fourth wall for everyone and reading a quote from the email that you wrote in um, suggesting this topic for the show. So in your email, you said, uh, if you think you or your listeners will be interested in learning about how their cars work and about how I keep them working through modern diagnostics and why having your codes read at AutoZone isn't diagnostics, let me know. So to that, I would say, what the heck is modern diagnostics? What the heck is even having your codes read at AutoZone? I don't even know what that means. And am I just like totally blowing it over here by having neither of these things done? Because it sounds like you're down on the whole entire AutoZone diagnostics thing, but I'm like not even there yet. I'm not even having that done. So am I totally like screwing up my car? Okay. Well, that's uh, interesting. I There's been a lot of... Uh, uh, commercials where they show you taking your car to AutoZone or whatever uh, parts department and they bring out a code reader and they'll tell you what's wrong with your car. I say that with air quotes but the uh, problem with that is what they're doing is they're just um, asking the car what the check engine light says so that's equivalent to if uh, you went into a doctor's office and you told the doctor, hey, my leg hurts. I mean, that is not a, the doctor's not going to be able to get a proper diagnosis of what the problem is off of those codes. So you're um, saying the codes can basically tell you, it should let you maybe know where a problem is, but there's no actual diagnosis of what's causing the problem. Right. It tells you what system has the problem. And in some cases, the code may be, um, it might actually give you enough information to make a, a proper diagnosis. Uh, the code that most often comes up in that situation would be a 
uh, coolant not getting up to temperature in a reasonable amount of time, and it'll often come up as a thermostat code, which pretty much the only thing that can cause that is a thermostat. But with the exception of that one code, there's there's a lot of them that are very misleading. Uh, I could give you examples of people that have come into the shop with a problem like, I went to AutoZone and they said I need an EGR valve. Well, I asked them why they need an EGR valve. They said that's what the code said. So they described the car to me. The first thing they tell me, it's, you know, it's a Ford Taurus. Well, I already know off the top of my head that Ford Tauruses have a lot of sensor issues. So the odds that it's actually an EGR valve, it's uh, probably about 1 in 10 that it would be an EGR valve and not a sensor issue Interesting. or a bad hose. Um, but that's the kind of thing you'd have to actually check to make sure that you're not just throwing money at parts. It's funny where this is going, too, because much later in the interview, and maybe we can talk about it more later, I, I wanted to discuss kind of the... Um, just like the reputation that car mechanics can have and like do they deserve the bad reputation that they have i feel like a lot of people um the same way that like lawyers can be unfairly stereotyped or salespeople and stuff like that that with car mechanics people are always very uh like weary of going to a mechanic because it's like oh they're probably going to try to screw me over with price or they're gonna they're gonna try to get me to do this unnecessary work on my car that i don't really need to do on my car and it's funny because like the example that you just gave really puts you in a bad position because if they went and got this thing done at AutoZone, then they bring it over to you and they're like, "Like I totally know what's wrong with my car. You just need to fix this one thing. And then you come back to them. It's like, oh, actually, it's not that one thing. I need to do this other thing. Like that that just plays into that whole entire scenario in that customer's head of like, oh, this guy's just going to try to screw me over here. Yeah, and I've I've been in those scenarios before. I had a customer come in one time they wanted uh, me to replace the spark plugs in their car because it wasn't running right. Well, uh, a lot of people seem to think that that's what causes that, but the actual problem was they had a misfire on one of their cylinders. And on this occasion, we were actually pretty slow at the shop. So I went ahead and just did diagnostics on it for free at no charge. And I found out what the actual problem was. And I told them, I can replace the spark plugs. It will not solve your issue. And they you know, started saying, oh, you're trying to rip me off. I can just take it somewhere else. I'll put the spark plugs in. And I mean, I wasn't even charging them anything for the advice. I was saying, if you want to, I can put the plugs in, but they, they kind of went off on me. Man, that's so frustrating. That's got to be like the worst thing. If you're like a nice, worst. honorable person and you are just trying to give someone good advice. I'm trying to save them from you know, throwing money out there that's not going to solve their issue. Maybe they don't have the money to do the pr- repair correctly. But at least let's not do a repair that's going to do nothing. Save your money so that way you can get the problem solved later. Right. So now, I guess let's just address that question now then. In, in With all the people that you've met in the industry and this and that, like, do you feel like there are a... a a decent amount of mechanics that are trying to take advantage of the fact that people don't know much about their own cars or more often than not, when a mechanic is suggesting to you something that costs more than what you originally thought, it's probably sound advice. I'm going to say that that's really going to depend on where you're going. I've got a few different examples. Uh, some of the independent shops I, I know of, uh, they are, they're really good. And then there's also the occasional ones, and they're 
they're pretty rare at this point where the person is really out to get you. And I would say that as far as industries go, it's really no worse in the car industry than it is in any other industry. Okay. And your point is well made about that that it's those are becoming more few and far between and for that matter like all industries bad service is becoming now, more rare because of things like Yelp and whatever else that people like need to do everything they can to get positive reviews. Absolutely. And there's there's something else to that too and um it's a pattern I've kind of noticed I noticed it locally, and I'm not sure if it's the same problem on a national level, but places like uh, Meineke and Midas um, seem to have an unusual tendency to overprice a job, um, like brake jobs, for example. I've seen people come out of those places with five and six hundred dollars worth of brake repair, and and that's just on you know the front wheels or the rear wheels. Hmm. And I don't know how you could possibly justify charging that much. There isn't really I mean, unless you were replacing absolutely everything. And when somebody comes into you just to have their brakes serviced, it's almost impossible to have it cost that much. Yeah. Unless it's been grinding for weeks. So it sounds like you would advise that people sooner go to like a, a mom and pop shop than a big like corporate place. Generally, I would. Okay, interesting. So let's try to give people uh, a little bit of tips right now with, I guess, finding a good mechanic. So being a mechanic yourself, like what advice would you give to customers that are trying to find a really good, reliable mechanic that's going to be really uh, like honest with them and stuff um, and, and hope that we aren't getting screwed over here? I can tell you that the majority of the customers that come to us are actually referrals from other customers of ours. If okay. people really do like their mechanic and they do a good job and they're they're not overcharging it's they're going to talk about it so maybe just asking your friends and family uh what kind of relationship they have with their mechanic um and maybe you can find a good one that way that's a really good idea if you move into say a new area and you don't know anyone there uh i'm gonna have to do a disclosure here we are a napa auto care facility um but what I would normally recommend is going to like the Napa auto parts store and talking to the manager to find out who they would trust to take their cars to. That's another really good idea. um, One of the big things is some of these shops, their diagnostic skills aren't that great. So what they'll do is they'll buy parts and if it doesn't solve the problem, they'll send the parts back to the parts store. So the parts store is going to see that, parts going out and coming back in all of the time. So they know that that shop is not doing a good job of figuring out what's wrong. Man, those are both really good pieces of advice. I love that. So to take it back to the beginning of the interview where uh, where I was asking about the modern diagnostics and your email mentioning that you keep cars working through modern diagnostics, what, uh, what does that mean exactly, modern diagnostics? Like what are you doing in a vehicle that is quote unquote modern diagnostics? Well, that is going to be something uh, very similar to what I brought up at the beginning about uh, going to a doctor. The doctor knows how your body works, and in the same way, we know how cars work. So first of all, it's that knowledge that we gained through training or through years of experience in the field of how the system is supposed to work. Uh, we have additional resources that we have access to, like uh, sites like Identifix, which we pay subscriptions to to maintain a up-to-date uh, information on what kind of failures are common on vehicles. 
Mm, interesting. And, so is that like a big forum, basically, or is that more like they actually keep track of all this data? It's a uh, it's sort of a combination. Uh, people have problems. They communicate with Identifix, and uh, when I say people, I generally mean uh, shops or technicians, and they work through getting those solved with uh, technical experts. And then after those problems have been solved, they go into sort of a forum area, which is ac- accessible by a subscription. Okay. And you can use that to uh, see what problems are common and to also give feedback of, I had this exact same problem, but my solution was different. So we do have some access to that. Now, that might give you an area of where to look and how to focus on the problem. But that's still not going to tell you what's wrong with your specific vehicle. Okay, let's stop right here before we go into the specific vehicle and more to try to find the cause of problems and everything. To even do that part of, of like, let's say what AutoZone is doing or to even try to figure out where in the car we should be looking or to get some guesses and stuff like that. Your analogy of going to a doctor's office and saying my leg hurts, well, you know, I can walk in and say my leg hurts. Like when my car won't start, my car doesn't tell me shit. It just sits there and it doesn't start, you know? So uh, what sort of like device, I guess, do you guys have? And like, where do you plug it into a car? How much does a device like that cost? Okay, good question. The uh, Now, the, the scanner at AutoZone, what they have is uh, generally referred to as a code reader. That's about a maybe a two or three hundred dollar piece of equipment there might be some out there that are a little bit cheaper and that uh reads the codes which are error messages that your car has and we're seeing what system has a problem how long have cars been able to do that for like communicate with a computer device like that well the early systems i think were in the 1980s probably around 82 that would be onboard diagnostic system 1 or obd1 for short and it was kind of a piece of junk <laughs> it kind of got slapped together and it wasn't uniform uh basically the government said everybody has to have communications with their uh electronics on the car but they didn't really tell you much about how that had to work so every single car company had their own connector, their own protocols, and it was a mess. Oh, damn. In 1996, which is why I'll, I generally won't own a car before 1996 unless it was old enough that it didn't have a computer in it. In 1996 and some 1995 vehicles, they have what's known as OBD2, which is a standardized port with uh, a requirement that you have access to certain information, basically anything that would be a uh, a running issue on the vehicle. It won't necessarily give you all the information you need on all of the emissions components. Okay. Or anything that would be not a running problem. And that was the last time this was updated? Was in 1996? Yeah, that's the last time the protocol was updated. And there's been talks about doing something additional but as far as that goes obd2 has been a pretty good success i i don't really have any complaints on how it works Uh, sometimes i don't have exactly the information i need but you find ways to work around it and where does like one of these code readers where does it plug into the car okay that is um there's a requirement that it be uh within i think it was within 16 inches of the brake pedal Hmm. if i remember correctly it might be two feet of the brake pedal so generally people put it 
like right underneath the steering wheel, kind of tucked up where you can't see it under the dash there. Um, some people, they decided to move it further over, um, more like where a floor shifter would be and kind of hide it behind a panel. Uh, sometimes they're further back. Sometimes they're further off to your left. It's it's not standardized exactly where it is, but there are requirements of how close it has to be to that brake pedal. So it's normally not too difficult to find. Okay. And now you mentioned that the one at AutoZone is probably only like two to 300 bucks. You saying the word only, I imagine that means that, that most mechanics would have like a nicer one than that or like a more comprehensive one than that. Right. And uh, so far we've only talked about reading codes. I haven't talked about additional functionality. And that's because those scanners only have that code, uh, that capability. Now, the scanners that most uh, shops will have or dealerships or most of the uh, other places that are going to do real diagnostics, they're going to have scanners that normally start around the two to $3,000 range and go up into the, oh, I guess you go up as much as you re- want, really. I suppose there's some out there that are closer to ten to sixteen thousand. Uh, in general, we have ones that are closer to the six or seven thousand dollar mark, and you know, two or three of those. Okay, and so then yeah. I guess what would the difference in that that sort of unit be? What are the extra capabilities it has? Well, the difference is, uh, in addition to being able to read codes, we can get detailed data about the system. We can actually read the sensor inputs and outputs. We can uh, do things like bi-directional controls, which means in addition to reading, we can also uh, command the, like an EGR valve to open a certain amount or close a certain amount oh, wow. in order to see how uh, it reacts. And yeah, it, uh, it gives you a lot of additional functionality. That's really cool. So you can also, I imagine, like have it a little bit more... Uh specific as to like when and where this problem like occurred in the first place yeah and like under that, what circumstances the problem occurred that is something that some sometimes the scanner will give you a little more information about but a lot of times that comes to really getting to discuss with the customer what the problem is and uh i work at a small two three bay shop uh there's two techs and we are both, uh, in addition to being mechanics, we also deal with the customers directly. So I can ask the customer when the problem occurred, uh, were they going up or down a hill, were they, uh, was it wet? Uh, you'd be surprised at what factors can, can come up that would be a trigger for a problem. That are actually important things that like someone yeah. would be like, I don't, I don't know why you even care about this, but it can be a pretty important thing. My uh, my dad always told me the story about a guy who had a car that would die on him very intermittently. Um, so intermittently, in fact, that we had to get the guy to show us exactly where it would die. Well, it turned out he would only have it die when he made a right turn onto the old Clark Bridge. That was the only time the car would die. It was the specific angle at which he was turning the wheel, which caused a wire underneath to rub up against something. And over time, that wire had actually worn a bare spot. So that way it would short out when he made that turn. Ah, and damn. And it would cause the car to die. I thought you were going to say ghosts on that bridge, like the ghosts were attacking his car or something. 
that would be a little more interesting. I, I think, mean, can but... we can we really rule that out? I mean, maybe that is what happened. You know, uh, maybe the ghosts were moving the wire. <laughs> yeah, you good point. Totally. So, what is uh, where do we look going forward now? Like, how much of a car nowadays is in like when I say nowadays, I mean like truly right now, like the best cars of right now, like Teslas and stuff like that. Right. And then in them, so now like looking forward a little bit, um, how much of the car is more controlled by a computer? and computer chips and stuff like that rather than straight up mechanical devices um like what what does that what does that look like going forward well uh i would say that most things are computer controlled at this point there's some amount of computer control to just about anything from your windows and your entertainment systems to your how the drivetrain operates uh there's just sensors on everything and they have to use that information to adjust the car to get the best possible fuel efficiency. Most of what we're seeing is adjustments for fuel efficiency, not for the autonomous vehicles, uh, as that's still kind of a little ways out there. Right. But the the fuel efficiency standards have really pushed some some interesting changes to the way the car works and the computer controls. Uh, I think the biggest one I can think of right now is uh, like gasoline direct injection which is they basically changed it from shooting um, fuel directly into the top of the engine to shooting it directly into the cylinder. And by doing that, they can maintain the fuel ratio. And I'm going to have a hard time explaining this. Uh, So a combustion happens at 14.7 to one part, uh, 14.7, parts air to one part fuel mm-hmm. is our ideal combustion for emission standards not necessarily the perfect combustion but it, it keeps the emissions from going out of whack um, and, and prior to fuel injection what, everything was carburetors and prior to fuel injection everything was carburetors they just dumped it yeah carburetors just dumped it down the intake into the engine fuel injectors sprayed it on the back of the valves which gets you closer to the combustion chamber now they're using direct fuel injection on some of the newest cars what that does is it sprays it directly into the chamber so instead of getting the entire uh the entire combustion chamber to 14.7 to 1 what they're doing is getting just that little area around the spark plug uh gap where the spark fires yeah at to 14.7 to 1 the rest of the chamber is about 40 to 1 40 parts air to one part fuel. That's incredible. So they're able to get more punch with less fuel. Right. Wow, that's so incredible. Yeah. yeah Which, I mean, that, uh, you know, tricky. it's like little minuscule amounts, obviously, inside the uh, engine at any given time. But, yeah, when you're looking at an entire tank of, like, 25 gallons of gas, that ends up being a, probably a huge difference. Right. And all of that's enabled by, you know, the co- kind of computer resources that we've got now that can make adjustments at you know nanosecond speeds and and uh all that causes some other interesting things to happen like the fuel rail pressure is now about two to three thousand pounds so you got to be really careful around taking those things apart wow interesting so yeah so let's talk about that a little bit so these advancements that we're seeing in cars uh is is this impacting your job in any way? It have, have mechanics jobs pretty much stayed the same? Are they getting easier? Are they getting harder than they were before? 
I would say they're definitely getting more technical. Um, it's getting to the point where it's going to be hard to call a mechanics job a blue collar job as from a uh, difficulty and technology standpoint. Mm, interesting. I'm, it'll probably still be classified as blue collar just because it's working you know, with phys- your hands more physical. Yeah. yeah. But it is it's a job for people with a brain at this point. Yeah. Interesting. If you can you can really waste a lot of money if you don't think all the problems through before you get into it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move forward a little bit with uh with some advice for people. So um what's one thing that you think that people are not doing at all with their vehicles that they should probably regularly be doing? I imagine this is gonna be something like preventative or or something like that. Like what should we be doing with our cars to uh to try to keep them in good shape? Uh well, there's actually a few things that people don't do very often with their cars and one of the things is actually being taken care of by the more modern vehicles, and that is the uh, tire pressure monitoring system. Now, some of your newer cars have tire pressure monitors, and a lot of people maybe ignore those lights because they get really annoying and they keep coming on. But uh, your tire pressure has a, a good effect on your gas mileage. So I would recommend checking your tires uh, whenever you gas up. Uh, you just keep a tire gauge in the in the glove box, and while gas is going into the car you can check all four tires real quick and that could help you with your gas mileage a uh, couple other things like you said uh, preventative maintenance type things uh, transmission services and coolant flushes i don't hardly see anyone getting those done uh, transmission service help extend the life of your of your transmission of course and your coolant flushes the the biggest thing with coolant is over time the the additives and the chemicals and it begin to degrade and as it deteriorates it starts becoming acidic so it can actually start eating through the plastic components in the system oh damn yeah so uh people just let that go until it actually causes additional problems and if you just maintain that uh regular maintenance on the coolant you shouldn't have hardly any problems with uh, radiators going bad or, or uh, bypass connectors uh, rotting out because that's mostly caused by that, that coolant eating away at it from the inside. The other thing I wanted to say, uh, the owner's manual is your friend. And if it does not have a uh, scheduled maintenance guide or, or a service uh, manual inside the owner's manual, there's normally one that comes along with the owner's manual. That will get you a good idea of when you should be having those regular maintenance items taken care of. That's what the manufacturer actually recommends to keep that vehicle in good service. And the last piece I was going to bring up, uh, things that people should be regularly doing, is oil changes. Uh, There's some interesting problems that have come up with oil changes. I, uh, You, of course, hear people that went too long without an oil change you know, 18, 20,000 miles, something like that. But the other thing is people uh, sometimes err on the other side of it. Um, the the quick lube places, Jiffy Lube, Valvoline, all those places are really good at selling you on the every three months, every 3,000 miles oil change. You really need to look into your owner's manual and see what it's recommending for your oil change intervals. I've got my owner's manual here for my 2002 Mercury Grand Marquis. I flip to the back where you've got engine oil 
And then I flip back through here, and my oil life interval is 5,000 miles. I was going to say, I've noticed, old. like, more modern cars, it's, like, always 5,000. Like, I remember back when I was, like, learning to drive, everyone's cars were 3,000, and now it's, like, five across the board, see, I see. that's the funny thing. You think it was three. It's not actually three. That's just what the quick loop places have sold us on. Your owner's manual, I would say that there's a pretty good chance that your owner's manual will even tell you 5,000. Wow, interesting. You are saying even back then? Yeah, like I said, my car is a 2002. Yeah, yeah. My car is not, I mean, it's not a brand new car by any means. That's 14 years old. Yeah, interesting. But um, uh, definitely check that. You might be getting your oil changed too frequently yeah. if you're one of those people who's really always on it. And the old myth that every car basically is on severe duty is is another thing that was part of that quick oil change trying to get you in more often deal. What it, is it? Unless, unless you're car is uh being used to tow things or being used as a uh a stop and go vehicle and by that i mean your car sits at idle most of the time and an example i could think of is uh rural route uh postal delivery where you drive up to the house and you get out of the car and you walk around and you put the mail in and then you go back to the car drive about 30 feet and then stop again if you're not in either of those two situations, your car's probably not in a severe duty uh, level for the maintenance schedule. Okay. Uh, what's the pay like, Steve, for being a mechanic? Um, well, that's going to vary a lot. Uh, a lot, a lot. First of all, I would have to talk about the different ways you could be paid as a mechanic, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Please. So... Uh, as you're familiar with, I'm sure there's both salary and uh, hourly rates uh, are both possibilities, and that might depend on where you're working. If you're going to work at, uh, if you're working at an independent shop, sorry, let me cover the third type before I go into where you might work. Yeah, for sure. the The third type is called flat rate. Now, this doesn't probably doesn't apply to a lot of other industries, but with auto repair every job that you could do on a car say replacing a water pump or an alternator or changing the brakes has what's called a uh, a book rate or a flat rate that is the amount of time that it's expected that your your average mechanic should be able to do that job in so that's how both you are charged and in some cases how the mechanic is paid based on what the flat rate is for that job so Let's say a job says it takes three hours, so they're going to charge the customer three hours worth of labor plus whatever parts. The mechanic is going to get paid for doing three hours of work. If the mechanic finishes the job in an hour and a half, they're still getting paid three hours worth of work. Hmm. How aggressive are those uh, are those time allotments? Uh, it kind of depends from job to job. I wouldn't say they're overly aggressive. I'd say a quality mechanic should be able to beat them most of the time. Um, sometimes they're just arbitrarily wrong, but uh, I would say for the most part they're they're fairly accurate. And uh, for a like a mid-level mechanic, a, a quality mechanic should be able to beat them just about every time. Okay. Okay. So it's not unusual for some of the best mechanics out there to be. Uh, working 40 hours in the week and pulling in somewhere between 60 and 80 hours. Wow, that's awesome, man. So you can get paid pretty darn well as, a, as an auto mechanic. Yeah, yeah, there's an opportunity for that. 
So uh, back to the discussion of where you might get paid what. Um, a independent shop, uh, you might get paid uh, either any one of the three, really, because independent shops vary so much. Um, that And that might depend on what additional responsibilities you might have. Like, I'm not just a mechanic. I'm also a sales associate. I answer the phone. I price out jobs. So I'd get paid an hourly rate um, or, in some places, a salary. Uh, fleet garages, um, places like, uh, think of your utility companies. They, they manage a fleet. So a fleet mechanic is probably going to be paid on a salary. Um, a lot of times there might not be any work for them to do, and that's great. But when there's something for them to do, they bust their butt to get that car back on the road. So that way uh, business can continue as usual. Yeah, and probably covered with better benefits than than most other mechanics as well. They they probably are covered pretty well. Um, the other place you might work, uh, maybe a dealership. Dealerships, as far as I understand, they tend to play, pay a flat rate or some adjusted model off a of flat rate. You might have like a flat rate with a base level or or something like that. And possibly if you are like a lead tech at a dealership, you might be getting paid uh, a salary because in addition to your responsibility of fixing cars on an as-needed basis, you would be responsible for making sure that no one else is having problems with the cars they're working on. You're kind of floating around and kind of being like a small manager type position. Right. So those rates can vary a lot. Now, I think when I started, I started at about 12 bucks an hour. Um for a guy with no no real experience working at a small shop in a um how would i describe that an area where the cost of living is unusually low so i would think if i was in a bigger city it might have been a higher rate starting out maybe 14 16 somewhere in there mm-hmm. and really the the limit is is not something i'm really aware of maybe 40 or 50 bucks an hour Okay. If you're working at some of the higher end places, like maybe a Mercedes or or places where it's expected that you pay more for for the work, uh, Jaguars, the really high end cars. So you could make six so figures as an auto mechanic. Yeah, yeah. No, you could definitely make six figures as an auto mechanic, but you better be the best darn auto mechanic around if you <laughs> want to try and get into that. Yeah, for sure. Cool, man. Uh, well, Steve, let's give people some advice, man. If there's anyone listening to this that wants to become a mechanic or maybe just even wants to learn how to work on their car a little bit more themselves, what advice would you give? Well, as far as that goes, a good mechanical aptitude is, is going to be a must. Um, and if you're going to want to learn how to work on your own cars, you're going to want to learn the basic operations of how how a car works, uh, how the engine works, how the emission systems work, and things like that. I'm sure that there's instructions available, uh, YouTube and and things like that, if you're just trying to do some independent study for how to work on your own car. If you're looking at becoming a mechanic as a profession, uh, you're going to want to get involved in some kind of schooling because the amount of information you'll get on how to do proper diagnostics is is going to be one of the determining factors on if you're going to be able to get a job and how well you're going to be able to do at that job. So I would generally recommend, um, well, I'd personally recommend a tech school because I, 
I really think that you get the most bang for your buck out of those uh, for this line of work. Yeah, probably but, probably a better education, honestly. I mean, it, it, it that's really could all you're be. focusing on. And uh, with the caveat that just like anything else in life, you get out of it what you put into it. I went to college with some people who I swear by the time they got out of that program, they probably still didn't know how a car worked. Yeah. I don't know how they managed to do that, but that's, you know, that's on them. It's on you to get something out of your education. And if you're going to be either spending your money or your parents' money to get an education, you better make sure that you get something valuable out of it. Amen, dude. Love that. Yeah. And I would say pay the most attention when it comes to the electrical systems and uh, diagnosing those. Uh, it gets really in depth with uh, like using an oscilloscope, uh, learning how the wave patterns, um, uh, how the different computers operate and the different signals that you're looking for. I mean, it gets pretty in depth. So pay very close attention to those courses because they're only going to become more valuable. Right on, man. Cool. Well, Steve, thank you so much, man. And thank you for uh, the advice for us car drivers as well. That was great advice for um, trying to find yourself a good mechanic by talking to friends or family, stuff like that. Uh, now we know that we need to check our manuals for our cars before we go and get oil changed every 3,000 miles or something like that. So it's a very informative interview. Thanks, man. All right. Thank you, Blake. Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you did, I would appreciate it so much if you told a friend about it to help spread the word about the show. And if you've been listening to the show for a little while and been enjoying yourself, I would really appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. That's a way that a lot of people learn about new podcasts. And the more reviews and the better reviews that a podcast gets, the more people that that podcast ends up in front of. So that would be a really awesome way to help the show. And if you're sitting there and thinking to yourself, yeah, that's all fine and good, Blake, but uh, what are you going to do to help me out? Well, how about being a guest on Half Hour Intern? That is right. You could totally be a guest on this show. So if you have been sitting there listening to this show and thinking to yourself, you know what? I do this totally awesome thing for a living. Or you know what? I have this awesome hobby that I'm really, really passionate about and I would love to tell people about it. Go to halfhourintern.com and click on the Submit Your Ideas link at the top of the page. And through there, there will be forms that you can fill out to get in touch with me about the possibility of coming on the show and being a guest yourself on the Half Hour Intern Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening.